The producers of this podcast would like to advise that you should not take anything we say on this podcast as being specific financial advice for you, your loved ones, your neighbour or your cat. We don't know your particular financial situation. So before you make any investment decisions, please use your head and obtain financial advice from a suitably qualified advisor. And now... Welcome back to the QAV podcast. My name is Cameron Riley. Tony will be joining me in a minute. I just thought I'd drop in and give you a little bit of a, a reminder about what we're going to do in this episode. A bit of a producer note, if you like. So the first episode, which you've hopefully already listened to, if you haven't, go back and listen to that one before you listen to this one. I know I'm not the boss of you, but that's just my recommendation because uh, that's where Tony tells his story, how he how got to be where he is and, and his background so you know he's uh, just, a, just a normal bloke who uh, uh, studied the the art of investing and became very, very good at it. <clears throat> this one we're going to get into the weeds a little bit. We're going to start talking about his method, his, his system for figuring out which stocks are likely to outperform the market, outperform the other stocks. And I'm going to try and do it at a very high level in this episode. We're going to run down a list of things that he looks at that's accessible to everybody. You don't need a degree in accounting. You don't need a degree in maths. It's very, very simple. In fact, as I've been going through and and recording these shows and editing these shows, I've been building my own spreadsheet according to Tony's uh, guidance that he says on the podcast, just to make sure I can do it. And trust me, if I can do it, you can do it. And we'll probably share that spreadsheet as well up on the website at some stage. A couple of other notes with this podcast. Uh, Some of it, Tony was recording in his bedroom while his apartment he's just moved into in Sydney is still being renovated and he was trying to hide from the builders. You might hear a little bit of construction noise in the background, but there's also a bit of shuffling. That's him on his bed. Um, then in some other parts of the recording, it's actually higher quality because uh, I got him to record his end so I don't have to record it over Skype. Just a little, you, you'll hear it's better sometimes. That's just, uh, it'll, it'll all be good uh, soon when he's finished getting the renovation done to his house. Um, All right, and I'm just going to interrupt from time to time, sorry about that, to clarify some of the stuff that he's saying or maybe reword it in a different way or reiterate it. Uh, Tony's a very, very dry guy, very smart, very, very articulate, but very dry. Uh, This is only his second podcast he's ever done, so cut him some slack. Uh, And he's sober. I tried to get him to drink a couple of bottles of wine before he recorded. He didn't think that was a good idea, considering we record like midday. Uh, anyway, so uh, I'll, I'll try and uh, butt in every now and again, just to make sure you're still awake, just to make sure you're following along with the methodology and the system. And uh, hopefully by the end of this, you're going to have an idea about how you can do what Tony does. Uh, and then I'll tell you what we're going to do next at the end of this episode, I guess. So I'm going to start by getting Tony to tell you what happened to him last weekend. Uh, tell me about your weekend. Oh, I had a... Um, so I have a, a, a racehorse breeding business um, and racing with um, a friend of mine, and we had a horse running in a group one in Melbourne at Caulfield on the weekend, so I flew down for the weekend. Um, 
And uh, unfortunately, our horse ran last. But, um, <laughs> but it was still a good weekend. I caught up with lots of friends and had a, a big night Saturday night in a cocktail bar on Fitzroy Street in St Kilda. And um, it was so big that uh, I left my laptop in the lounge on the way, way home on the plane on Sunday morning. So I've got to have that couriered up. So if we have any technical difficulties, that's the reason. I'm on a very old laptop, which is just really being held together with literally with sticky tape at the moment. <laughs> so I tried, the, I tried to have the battery replaced on this laptop a couple of weeks ago. I went to the Genius Bar and they said, "Sorry, we don't we don't uh, keep batteries that old." So yeah. I've got to keep the the plug in, which is why I've got sticky tape around it. <laughs> Otherwise, it just shuts off straight away. So, uh, okay, a couple of immediate questions. People are probably thinking, hold on, this dude's supposed to be rich. Why didn't he just buy a new laptop? Yeah, I need to. I, I'm, actually, we could talk about this later offline, but I want to get up some kind of, you know, in-the-cloud type system so I'm not reliant on any one laptop so I can have two or three at different places and not worry about leaving one behind but stay up to date. Yeah. So I'm, maybe I'm, you could give me some advice. Yeah, I'm your man there. million dollars an hour is what I charge, but, hmm. um, I'll, you know, I can help you definitely. Yeah, good. <laughs> Second question is, uh, how long have you been breeding horses, race horses? Uh, yeah, what's it, about seven years now, I think. Obviously, you haven't found a system as good as your uh, QAV system for breeding no. race horses. <laughs> no, it's been a dead loss so far. It's, the, the breeding side's not too bad. Um, that's more of a business, so you, you can control the cost a lot better and you know you can scale it up, scale it down. It's not as reliant on um, one big win paying for the rest, which the horse racing game is. So the horse racing game's for fun. And, and this particular horse, Fury, has won us about a million bucks in prize money, so it kind of pays for the rest. Oh, okay. Uh, but that's, wow. it's basically tax lottery. You've got, to, you've got to get one good one to pay for all the other ones in, right. in horse racing. Yeah. It's like investing in startups, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or documentaries. Yeah. Uh, or books. <laughs> or books. <laughs> Uh, that's a little bit of an in-joke. We won't talk about that right now. That's for a future episode. So, mate, um, what I was hoping to do with this episode is get into a little bit of the nuts and bolts of the QAV system. Remind people what QAV stands for. Quality at value. Right. That's um, personally how I choose my wives. Um, now, I... <laughs> On the value side. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, quality at value. Yeah. Um, now, uh, I'm going to get in trouble for that. I'll edit that out later. Just remind me. Um, I um, I just wanted to start really, really basic, if we can. So let me let me go back and ask a dumb question I should have asked at the very beginning. Now, this nineteen and a half percent that you talk about. Is that the increase in the value of the shares in your portfolio or is this to do with dividends that your portfolio is returning each year? No, it's, it's if you think about my investments as a company, it's, it's the increase in the market value of the shares at the end of the year compared to the start of the year, plus any cash holdings I might have, plus any dividends that come in, less my costs, um, less any tax I have to pay, and from time to time, any interest on borrowings I have to pay. Okay, so it's the increase in the share price and the dividends, yes, essentially. Yes, that's right. Yep. It added together. Okay. Yeah. All right, so now I'm going to get Tony to start going through this checklist. And as I said, I'm going to try and keep it high level. 
Um, just regarding the checklist, if it sounds pretty daunting to you, remember this. I, I guess the other thing to say is that um, it's a long checklist, but you know, probably 80 to 90% of companies don't get past the first hurdle. So it doesn't involve a whole heap of work. work. It's only when you find a, a company that you um, that passes the initial sort of tests that uh, you do the, the full checklist on them. But generally, what the, the theory is we're trying to take out the bad stocks and the rest should beat the market. I mean, that's the general theory. If you think about the index of stocks in the, in the uh, ASX or in any sort of stock market universe, they're made up of good and bad stocks. What we're trying to do here is pull out the bad ones and we expect the good ones to perform better than the average, including the bad ones. So I hope that makes sense anyway. Yeah, so it makes sense to me. What what Tony's saying is the the system that he's got is to relatively quickly weed out the companies that he doesn't expect to perform very well out of all of the companies on the stock exchange. The ones that are left over are the ones that are probably going to make. It's a bit like, I guess, testing a scientific hypothesis through experimentation. You run the experiments, a whole bunch of them, a whole bunch of the hypotheses will fail, and the one that doesn't fail is probably the one that's right. Um, and that's what we're going to do with Tony's methodology. So the next question I asked Tony is, if he, if he was starting right from the beginning again, let's say he didn't have a portfolio, but he knew everything that he's learned over the last 30 years, and he had to start from scratch, what would he do? Because I figure that's most of us. Some of you might already have a portfolio and you're wanting to optimize it. Some of you, I, I can't remember making this show with the view that my audience are my 18-year-old uh, sons, Hunter and Taylor. This is really for them to get their financial future sorted out, trying to get them to learn everything Tony learned so they can do what he's done. So if he was them, what would he do first? Where would I start? Well, if I was starting from scratch, I'd be very quickly looking at the what's called the operating cash line of the results. So uh, every company that reports um, on the ASX in Australia has to report using a certain format. And it's the same in all countries. The, the US has a different one, different format, but the same rules. Uh, and one of the things that they report on is what's called a cash flow statement. And in just as in life, in shares and companies, cash is king. And the reason I say that is, is because there have been it has been known to happen, just like it does in the horse racing game, that people can manipulate the figures to make themselves look good. And uh, it's very hard or it's or it's harder to manipulate the cash flow statement than it is compared to, say, the manipulate your profit and loss statement uh, because there's there's less accounting trickery you can use. It's, it's pretty basic. The, the top line of the cash flow statement says, I had, you know, this much come in and receipts in the last six months and I had to pay suppliers this much. And that's about it. You, you can put other costs in there. Sometimes some businesses will put their staffing costs, um, at least at the point of sale, if they're a retailer, for example. But it's pretty basic. It's only after that that you start getting into lots of um, financial, not chicanery or trickery, but, but arcane sort of rules about what goes where. And they can always be a little bit manipulated. I'm not saying it's always for a bad reason. Sometimes it's it's just a, you know, it's the call of the, the treasurer or the CFO as to where it goes. But certainly cash is king. So the first thing I look at is the operating cash line. 
All right, well, if you've got a pen and paper handy, write that down, operating cash flow. If you don't, if you're at the gym or at the car or walking the dog, don't worry about it. Uh, We're going to cover these details over and over and over again over the next however many episodes. We're going to take individual companies and break down their numbers and their financials until we can all do it with our eyes closed. So the very first thing I'll do is quite quickly, I'll look up the cash. I'll look up uh, how much cash is being generated per share, which is just dividing the operating cash by the number of shares on issue. Again, that's in the reporting pack that comes out for each company. And then I'll do what's what I call a price to cash flow. And I'm looking for a, a company with a price to cash flow of less than 10 times. So I guess I'm putting the value side of things ahead of the the quality side of things at this stage, but it's probably the easiest way to to get into looking at a company. Okay, okay, wait, wait, wait. Slow down a second there for me, champ. I'm already lost. So let me just go back a step and see if I'm sure. following. Um, yeah. Operating cash line, that's telling us what they, uh, how much cash the business has generated in the last- Coming in the, in the front door, that's In right. the reporting yeah. period. So in the last yeah. six months. And then you look at, you take that total number and you divide it by the number of shares that have been issued. And that gives you how much cash is being generated per share. Why is that that an important metric, the per share aspect? Because I want to compare it to the share price. So I want to get, so a lot of, uh, a lot of, analysts will focus on what's called the PE ratio, so the price to earnings ratio. And one of the lines in the financial report is the earnings per share. Um, but that's uh, that's much lower down in the accounting profit and loss statement. That's taking into account all the other costs in the business and um, any other incomes from investing or raising money or raising debt, all that kind of thing, and how much tax you've paid, all that kind of stuff. But um, I'm, I'm creating my own metric, which is just the cash that comes in through the front door, um, less whatever costs are associated with that, with that cash. So the, the price to operating cash ratio. So to get the to get to be able to compare it to the share price, I've got to I've got to first calculate the operating cash per share. Okay. And you said you're yep. looking for one that is less than ten times the price to cash flow ratio. Yeah. Okay. So once you calculate that figure, you take the operating cash for the reporting period, you divide it by the number of shares that are on issue, that, and then you're looking for one that's less than 10. Yes, that's right. And hopefully less than six. I mean, six is the magic number, but I start with 10 because, um, oh, look, there, in investing, you don't want to be too black and white. So I'll start with 10 and do some more digging. Um, but if it's something like a, if it's six or less, that's a real, a real fine. That's a good, that's a good, uh, a good company to focus on because their their shares are trading at such a low price to cash ratio. So they have lots of value in the share price. So that's the first first thing you focus on, and the reason why I focus on. All right, let me take a producer moment here and just uh, check in with you all. You doing okay? Is your brain melting? I know mine was at this juncture, but um, I'll tell you what I've done for you. So I've gone uh, while I'm editing this and uh, started to build a spreadsheet 
based on what Tony's saying. So I can better understand it. And I'll throw that up in the show notes for this episode, episode two. You can go up to qavpodcast.com.au, have a look at that. But basically what he said is this. You go to the annual report of the company that you are looking at. Look at look for the financial section of the report. It'll be down the back. There's a lot of blather up the front about what a great bunch of guys and girls they are and how they're going to change the world and they're saving cats and dogs from trees on a daily basis and they love the environment. Can't get enough of the environment. It's great. They love it. Um, by the way, I did use BHP as my test example. That's why I'm saying that. Go down, you have a look at their net cash flow is what the uh, line is. Net operating cash flow for the period. That'll tell you how much cash that they've uh, brought in during that period, less the uh, outgoing. So incomings versus outgoings in cash flow, net operating cash flow. Right? Then you want to go down to the section that talks about share capital under capital structure in this report. It'll tell you what the closing number of shares was for the period. So you can throw that up in your spreadsheet. So then you've got how much cash, the number of shares, throw them into your spreadsheet and divide the total cash by the number of shares. That will give you the cash per share. Then you just go to the ASX's website, look up the last share price for the company, and then you can throw that into your spreadsheet and then you divide the share price by the cash per share and that will give you Tony's number that should be Below 10, ideally below 6. And if you're wondering why it should be below those numbers and how that's relevant, we're going to get to that later on in the episode when we start running down his checklist and adding up all of the scores that the business gets based on all of these individual metrics. So don't worry about why it's important so much now. We'll get to that in about 20 minutes, half an hour. All right. That's the first, first thing you focus on. And the reason why I focus on that, and it came about from a book I read, which um, oh, I must have read it 10 years ago or so. Um, I'm just trying to think of the name. It's something like Market Market Wizards or Market Market uh, Masters of the Market, something like that. But it's, it was basically a, um, a book about half a dozen or so really good investors who didn't have a large, didn't have a high profile in the public. And one of them was the guy who owned a company called Cap Cities, so Capital Cities, which was a TV station that started off as a, as just one station in, I think, New York, upstate New York, and then eventually grew to be one of the big networks, I think ABC from memory. And uh, Warren Buffett um, eventually bought a large shareholding in them. And he always nominates the CEO of Cap Cities as one of the best investors he ever saw. And one of the metrics that, that he used, the, the CEO of Cap Cities, was to look at operating cash flow and to pay less than six times. Um, so it's 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 a, it's a rule of thumb, um, and like I said, you could you could pay more um, if there was a reason to pay more. But six is a good number. So the, the first thing you look at is is the is the value side of things. And what you'll find is that that narrows down the the workload to a small number of shares. I mean, I think from memory in Australia, there's something like two and a half thousand shares on the share market. They're all reporting in four weeks, so it's a lot to go through. But if you can just focus on one thing, you can filter out a lot quite quickly. 
So basically what Tony is saying here, the reason why this number is important, this number again is the price per share versus the cash per share, is to get an idea of whether or not he thinks there is value in the company as an investment. It's a basic metric that he applies and it can very quickly filter out a lot of companies so he doesn't need to spend any more time investing in them. In order for a share to be worth his time and effort, that price per share divided by the cash per share needs to be at least lower than 10, ideally lower than 6. That That's his basic indicator of value. If companies don't pass that metric... If they're above 10, then he won't even bother looking at them, usually any further, unless there's some sort of extraneous circumstances. So that's why this number is important. So you you create that number, and you throw that into your spreadsheet. What's next? What's next? Um, if it comes out good, I'll then start to go through and look at the quality side of things. So um, I have a share valuation spreadsheet, and what I'm working towards with the valuation side of things is a checklist uh, where I can just give a lot of the metrics that I that I follow or that I look for in the company, I'll give them a score. Um, usually it's a score between minus one and two. Um, mostly it's just binary, one or no, one or zero. And then I'll add them up and, and work out uh, what their score is. And ideally to get a score um, that, that becomes investable, you want that score to be up around 75%. That's a bit more work, so I can take you through that sort of line by line if that's helpful. Yeah. Yep, so I'm going to talk about a company. It reported a couple of weeks ago. It's a company I've had shares in for a long time, uh, so it's 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 been a, a long-term holding of mine. It's been a quality company for, for a very long time. It does fly under the radar. I, I would venture to say if I did mention its name, most people probably haven't heard of it. So where I start to look at things is with the share price graph. And this is a very, very, again, a very simple way of looking at shares. Um, and it was someone I listened to on a, an ASX podcast a long time ago, put it very succinctly. If the share graph is going from the bottom left to the top right, it's a buy. And if it's going from the top right to the top left to the bottom right, it's a sell. So the first thing we're going to do is check this, what we call the sentiment on the, on the share. And for this one that we're talking about, uh, the sentiment's good. It, it's moving from the left, bottom left to the top right. Now it does, these things wiggle around. I mean, it might go up and down, and but over time we're looking for it to go up. And so the type of graph I'm looking at, and you can use Yahoo Finance or Google Finance or even the ASX to get this information, is a five-year monthly share price graph. So we're looking for the trend. But again, keeping it simple, this, this company we're talking about has a rising share price. Um, so that's a tick. Sentiment in the market has been has been good about it. The next thing I'm looking at is price. And I'm looking to see some of the metrics around price. So um, the first one is I'm looking for uh, a reasonable yield. Now, some companies don't pay a dividend. And that's okay as long as they're in, um, in growth mode and they're reinvesting the money into their own business and growing. But most companies will pay out some profits and produce a yield. So a yield is the dividend per share, taking that number and dividing it by the price. Okay, let's take a pause there for a second. So what is a dividend and how does it relate to yield? Well, think of a dividend like this. So companies make money, 
and uh, what a lot of them do, publicly listed companies, uh, is they will give some of their profits out to their shareholders. It's profit share, basically. A couple of times a year, usually they will pay their shareholders a little bit of money for every share that they own. That's called a dividend. The word dividend comes from the Latin dividendum. If you've listened to any of my history podcasts, you know I love getting into the Latin roots of words, which means thing to be divided. So a dividend is a payment that's divided by the number of shareholders, I guess. So just to recap on uh, what Tony's been talking about, this yield business. So if you go into the financials of the company's annual report, you'll be able to see what the dividend per share is. They'll probably list that. And then you throw that into your spreadsheet and then you just uh, divide that dividend per share by the price per share, which you've already got in your spreadsheet. That will give you the yield. And as Tony's saying, what, what he thinks is important is the consistency of the yield, that they're regularly paying out roughly the same percentage of their profits to their shareholders each year. It's not wildly fluctuating. Fluctuating is a sign of instability, of problems, and that's something that we want to avoid when we're trying to assess the company for quality. Is it a quality company? Is it uh, being run well, etc.? So the company I'm talking about is paying a, a yield of 3.4%. I'm looking, to, I'm looking for a consistency of yield. So it doesn't have to be high or low. Um, it'll be different for different companies who are in different stages of their economic growth. Oftentimes, a startup won't, well, they won't pay a dividend. Um, or, but a company that's big and mature will pay a, a high yield. And it's a bit of an incentive for investors. So if you're a retiree, for example, you can get a, like say, a 5% yield from a blue chip company. It's not a bad place to park your money and live off the dividend yield. But what I'm looking for at this stage is a consistency of yield. So over time, has the dividends been paid? Uh, because you don't want to, if you find that they've been stopped or lowered for a particular reason, um, that's a bit of a red flag. It means that they've had problems with um, with their profit uh, and they've had to reduce or, or cut out the dividend. And that's usually the last thing a company would want to do because as I said, people have bought the shares for a, for a consistent dividend. Um, and if it's not there or if it changes, then that's, uh, the shares will be sold off. Not by everyone, but at least those people who are relying on the dividend for their income. So this company has a 3.4% yield. That's not too bad. It's trading on a price-earnings ratio of 13. So the, the PE ratio is, is like that price-to-operating cash ratio I spoke of before, but it's at the bottom end of the profit and loss statement. So it's the it's the profit for the company um, converted into earnings per share and then divided by the price of the company. So this company is 13. The market average in Australia is about um, 16. So this is slightly below average, which is a good sign. Um, it's a good sign for the to um, lead us to, to uh, think this might be a value, like a value share purchase, which it is. Um, it's, that's kind of, again, the very simple, quick, first uh, look at it. So, for example, I, I'm looking at the price of the company we're talking about. In the very next row of the spreadsheet I'm using, there's another company which has been known for um, its high growth, and that's trading on a PE of 50. Uh, and that's a company that has been known for its high growth profile. 
And that tip, that's typically what happens is that the PE is high for growth companies and it comes down lower for back towards the market average for low growth companies. But there is a sweet spot. There are some companies who still have reasonable growth and uh, and trade below the, the market average and they're the ones we're trying to find. So that's to give you context, um, high growth company at 50, this company at 13, market average at 16. So the next thing Tony says he looks at when he's got the P.E. ratio is the history of the P.E. ratio for that particular stock over the last couple of years. Uh, You can get that on Yahoo Finance or any one of those sort of sites. And he's looking to see if the P.E. ratio is going up or if it's going down, because if it's actually been going down, that means that it may hold more value as an investment. If it's at the top of its PE trend over the last few years, there's probably less value in it as an investment as there is if it's at the low point or if it's coming down from its high point in terms of PE. The next thing I guess I want to talk about is I start to get into the the quality side of things. And I use a couple of subscription services. Both of them that I use are are software providers and uh, they have their own ways of of grading companies in terms of the quality of the balance sheet and the P&L, the profit and loss. And so the, I have a quick scan of those two services. This company is coming out um, on the good side, uh, not not great, but not bad. We're not getting into which subscription services he uses at this stage because that's a whole other conversation that I want to wait for a, a later episode. I think we can talk about the merits of this one versus that one. So don't worry about that for now. Just know that it's the he uses a number of these tools, and you'll get more information in future episodes. Um, I'll then look at the the balance sheet in terms of the, the total equity. And so what total equity is, um, assets minus liabilities. It gives you the equity in the company. So I'm focusing on net equity. And the thing I'm focusing on, has it consistently gone up? And the reason I do that is because basically that would mean the company, the company is, has been uh, pretty steady in terms of not raising more capital or not raising more debt. So it's it's been able to let the profits flow to the bottom line and sit there until they're, they're acquired. So it's a good thing to see companies having their, their equity uh, increase consistently over time. Now, you can find total equity or net equity in the annual report of the company. It'll be in the financial statements there somewhere. Uh, Tony does point out that sometimes companies may make acquisitions or things like that, which can cause the trend of their equity to substantially go up or down. So if you see something like that, it's worth drilling into, see if there's any good causes, good reasons for that. But generally speaking, he's looking for a positive upward trend with their net equity over time. The next thing I'm looking at is what's sometimes called the, the price to book, or it's the the price, it's, it's basically the price to net equity. So I'm going to do a calculation to express the equity again on a per share basis. So just take the net equity from the company report and divide it by total shares to get to equity per share. And I'm going to compare that to the price. In this case, the company I'm looking at, the, the price or the equity per share is much lower than the share price. So it's not a great price to book multiple, so it doesn't get a great score on that on that basis. But again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Some some companies trade around their 
what's called their book value or their equity value, and some companies uh, command a premium. Generally, a quality company commands a premium, but it's also nice to buy um, equity at um, cents in the dollar too, which can happen from time to time. So I had to listen to this uh, section a few times before I felt like I understood what he's saying, but uh, I think we've got to keep in mind here that we're not looking at buying stocks in companies that are doing well. We're looking at buying stocks in companies that are doing well but are undervalued in the stock market. Their their share price doesn't accurately reflect the fact that they are doing well. So some companies will be doing well and their share price will reflect that. Uh, that doesn't mean necessarily, as Tony's saying, that they're a, a bad investment, but they're probably not going to give you that 19.5% average annual return that he's looking for. So again, when he says that uh, this company's not that he's that he's uh, looking at when he's doing his analysis is trading uh, at its sort of book value, that probably means that the market has kind of realised that this company's doing well, which is great, but uh, probably means it's not a value investment, if that makes sense. There's there's not as much upside in it as there might be if it was trading at a price lower than its book value. Hopefully that makes some sense. Makes sense to me, anyway. I'm I'm next looking at uh, what's called the earnings per share, which we spoke about before. And one of the things that that companies, a lot of companies will do because they're often pressured by by stockbrokers or fund managers, is to give an earnings guidance. So they'll either tell you what they think their earnings per share might be next year, um, or the fund managers will work it out for themselves. And and you can get either get this from the company reports or sources like um, Yahoo Finance or Google Finance will have what's called a consensus estimate. So they'll they'll poll stockbrokers and fund managers and tell you what they think the earnings per share um, will be on average next year uh, from their poll. So I'm looking for growth. I'm looking for the earnings per share to, to be going up. Okay, I think that was pretty self-explanatory. Now, the next thing Tony's going to talk about is what he calls a hurdle rate. And it took me a little while to get my head around this. Let me see if I can uh, give you the, the quick brain dump. When Tony's trying to figure out whether or not uh, a company is going to be a good investment for him with the kind of performance that he wants from uh, an investment, this 19.5% on average per annum return, one of the ways he does that is by using this thing called a hurdle rate. A hurdle rate is basically an arbitrary figure that you use, it's basically the return that you want to get on your investment. Now, you may not want to get a 19.5% return. You may want to just get a 6 or 7% return. You might want to get a 10% annual return. Uh, but Tony wants a 19.5%. So he says he uses a couple of different hurdle rates that will be used later on in the spreadsheet in your checklist. But to cut a long story short, it's just the kind of uh, investment that you want to get out of your portfolio, and then you'll be able to measure that against some other metrics along the way. So just in your spreadsheet, if you're playing along at home, type hurdle rate, and then put beside it the kind of annual return you want to get. It, it can be based on other things. So it might be, for example, if you've borrowed money to invest in the share market, you want to at least get 
uh, a return which is going to pay for the uh, cost of servicing the loan. So, you know, that's, that's probably a hurdle rate of 5 or 6%. It's, it's really up to you what you use as your hurdle rate. Some people just pick 10% because I think that's a a good number, and that's what they're trying to achieve in the market. Now, Tony uh, is talking here about borrowing money. I know uh, because he's told me one of the things that he did at various stages was uh, pay down the mortgage on his house, use the equity he then had in his house to borrow more money against that as uh, an asset, and then invest that money into the stock market because he knew he could borrow the money at I don't know, five or six percent return, nineteen and a half percent. It's a good deal, right? But if you're going to be doing that, you need to make sure you're at least getting enough of a return to be able to service the cost of the the mortgage. He also said in this section that uh, with this hurdle rate of nineteen and a half percent that that he has personally, not many companies are going to meet that kind of return. So it's another filtering mechanism to filter out the stocks that aren't going to be a good investment for him. One thing I haven't spoken about yet, but I should, is what's called return on equity. And that's um, one of the key metrics we're looking at in terms of uh, the quality of the company. So this particular company has a return on equity of 22%, which is which is quite high. And that means that for the equity that's sitting in the company, the earnings it's making is returning the company 22%. All right, I might just want to stop and break down this one a little bit. This one reminds me of the old Bible story of the parable of the talents. Uh, You have to forgive me, but I've spent the last few years making a documentary on early Christianity um, called Marketing the Messiah. Look it up. It might be out by the time you hear this. Uh, Tony has been involved too. He's one of the producers of the film. Anywho, um, you know the old Bible story, parable of the talents, even if you're not a Christian, um, you know, there's this king and he gave his three sons money and one of them went and bought Coke and snorted it off a hooker's tits and, and another one uh, bought a Ferrari and the third one, I think this is how it goes in the Bible, the third one invested it in Apple in 1983 and made a lot of money out of it. Uh, so basically, this return on equity that Tony's talking about is how well is the company doing with the money that it's got as a metric? Is it taking a buck and turning it into two bucks every year, or is it turning it into 10 bucks every year, or is it turning it into minus three bucks every year? So this is obviously a very big determining factor in whether or not it's a quality business. Is it a very well-run business, I guess? And the way you calculate this percentage if you're at home is you basically take its earnings, its net income, which again is in the financials, and you just divide it by its net equity, the net equity figure we got earlier on from the financials. So net net earnings divided by net equity, and that will give you a, a percentage. What we're going to do then is compare the return on equity to the price that we're, the share price, the price that we have to pay for it to make sure that um, our return on the price we pay is is high enough. So, Okay, so Tony gave you an example here for why this figure is important, and it was a little bit convoluted, so let me give you my version of it. Let's say I've got a nice, crisp $100 bill in my hand, and I tell you that you can buy it for $100. Is that a good investment for you? Not really. You're breaking even. If I say you could buy it for $10... That's a good investment. You're buying a $100 bill for $10. You're making a 10 times return on your investment. If I say you can buy it for $80, 
okay, you're making a return on your investment, but it's not as high. So what he's doing here is taking this return on equity figure, comparing it to the share price, and that tells him how much money he needs to spend on a share to get a certain amount of return on equity. Basically, is an indicator of, an indicator of am I spending $85 to buy a $100 bill here, or am I spending $10 to buy a $100 bill? Hope that makes more sense. I then put together a checklist. And um, again, this is something I started doing after I read a book. Um, and the book was called The Checklist Manifesto by a guy called Atul Gawande. And I probably pronounced his name incorrectly. But uh, the gist of the book was he was a surgeon and he was appalled at the mistakes that were being made in operating theatres. You know, people having... Uh, surgery on the wrong on the wrong arm or the wrong leg or the wrong side of the body or whatever and he was also he either was a pilot or had something to do with pilots and he said well before a pilot takes off he goes through or she goes through a very detailed checklist and so he developed a process which is still used in hospitals now of of going through a checklist of making sure you've got the right patient making sure it's the right leg you're operating on all that kind of stuff um and so he he you know, he, he uh, suggests that you use this kind of process in all different types of endeavors. And so I've started using it in, in my share investing just to make sure you take everything into account. And it's, it's a real, it is a benefit to write things down and then give them a score. Um, and you can see, you can compare one opportunity to another and rank them, which is another benefit of, of doing this process. So my checklist is a summary of all the things we've gone through, but I'll just read them out now. Uh, I guess for completeness. So the first thing I check for is um, the financial health. Has it met the financial health standards in my subscription services? Yeah, I don't think you want to listen to all this. Uh, look, um, we will go through all of his checklist in detail as we go into the series a little bit more and we start taking individual companies and breaking them down live on air. David Lee Roth would say, live in front of your naked steaming eyes. Uh, that's the plan for the continuation of the series. Um, we'll, we'll take stock by stock and do a complete analysis of them and uh, work out whether or not they meet Tony's criteria. So let's leave the checklist stuff for now. We'll get back to that at a later point. Really, all I wanted to get across in this episode is to give you an idea of the, the sort of things that Tony does, the fact that he knows what he's doing. He, he I mean, come on. I mean, this is the most serious sounding guy I've heard in years. He sounds like an accountant. Um, he's very serious. He, he's thought it through. He's got a process. It's worked very well for him over 20, 25, 30 years. And he's going to teach it to me and I'm going to teach it to you over the course of the series. So, um, yeah, we'll leave the checklist, I think, for a future episode. We're just He's just going over the same stuff and, and talking about making sure at the end of this that he's checked everything. After I do all these things, and for most of these things, it's a one or zero, but for some of them, I'll actually give them two points. All right, let me see if I can summarize the scoring of the checklist for you. So... He goes down the checklist, every item on the checklist, the company gets uh, either a positive score or a zero, usually, sometimes negative, sometimes as high as two, but basically positive or a zero score. Then at the end, he calculates how many items got a positive score, 
how many items got a zero or negative score and divides the pos the number of positive scores by the number of zero scores and that gives him a percentage. And then he says he only wants to invest in stocks that score 75% or above. Ideally, we want to invest in stocks that score 75% or above. Now, that's, again, a rule of thumb. And that's, that's basically the, the blend of quality and value that comes out after that checklist is done. All right. So that's the high-level overview of how he determines whether or not a company is quality at value, QAV. Uh, we then talked a little bit about uh, if he decides to invest in a particular stock, how he determines what allocation of his portfolio he's going to put in that. But I don't think we need to go into that right now. It's something we can do later on. He was talking about liquidity and exit strategies and all of that kind of stuff. But again, we'll, we'll tackle that in a future episode. One question I did have for Tony at this stage, though, was that his, his analysis seemed pretty academic and dry. He's focusing on numbers not really looking at what products the company has, who the people are, the vision, R&D, all of that kind of exciting stuff that I would have expected would have formed part of his analysis. And so I got him to talk to that a little bit. Yeah, look, that's a good question. And in fact, the very next note I have talks to that. Um, I do focus on the numbers. I think that's partly because I now know the Australian share market so well, I've got a fairly good idea of the companies and the people who are players. Um, and over time, this method does tend to bring the same sorts of stocks to the top all the time, and I say I know them well. But the, the next step is once I've worked out uh, that I want to buy a share and how much to buy of it and what to pay for it, I will go and do a bit of research on the company. Um, more to check that there's nothing untoward going on that I haven't uh, factored into my consideration. So I'll go and do a Google search or a Yahoo Finance search and just see what the news is on this company. And a couple of times I've been caught out because it may be under a takeover, for example. So unless you want to trade a takeover play, which is arguably can be profitable, um, it's not going to be a long-term hold for you. So that might uh, affect my decision to buy or not. Um, I I will oftentimes go to the annual report and just make sure there hasn't been um, any sort of qualified audit uh, report given by the auditors so that as long as the auditors are given a, a tick of quality, that's um, that's a good sign. Um, very rarely happens that they don't, but I've been caught out with that in the past as well. Um, and I'll I'll just do a, a quick search on uh, on anything about the company that might be in the news. Uh, but other than that, I mean, I, I read the the Fin Review every day, like I said before, and I subscribe to um, oh, quite a quite a few both subscription services in terms of the figures, but also in terms of market news. So you do tend to keep abreast of what's going on with these companies and you're quite familiar with them. Um, But yeah, the very last thing I do is, is like I said, a quick Google News search and maybe look at the annual report to make sure that there's nothing untoward I haven't caught up with lately. Well, we're almost done with this episode. Before we go... um Uh, I wanted Tony to talk a little bit about Warren Buffett's uh, annual newsletter. Again, you may recall from last week's episode, Warren Buffett, one of the most successful investors uh, in the world. Uh, He's in his late 80s, multi-multi-billionaire in the United States. Um, Tony's a big fan of his. I know he uh, spent a couple of hundred thousand dollars buying a single share of Berkshire Hathaway, Buffett's company, a couple of 
years ago just so we could go to one annual general meeting and hear Buffett uh, speak live. Um, and so I, I was talking to Tony a little bit about um, my teenage boys and, and uh, how I've been talking with them recently about starting investment portfolios, uh, uh, learning these strategies uh, for, that I'm learning from Tony so they can get started when they're 18. And uh, then we got into a discussion about Warren Buffett. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, that's a great mindset for them to be in. And I think, I can't remember the exact figures, but Buffett uh, did that calculation in the latest annual uh, letter to shareholders where he talked about the first share he ever bought when he was 12, I think. And I think he'd, he'd saved up from his paper route and paid about 100 bucks for it, which was a fair bit back then. Um, and he he had sold it along the way, but he said, if I'd taken that $100 and put it into an index fund, uh, it would be now worth, I forget how many millions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars, you know, $14 million or $50 million or something. It was a, a really large number over the 60-odd years, 70 years since then, um, which just points out the power of compounding. Wow. $100. Yeah over whatever period of time that is. Yeah, 65 yeah. years or something turns into tens of millions. So that's that's the I mean that's the message for your boys and for anyone listening to this podcast it's you're not going to become a millionaire overnight but you will if you do it long enough. And um, and look, even if you don't want to go through the methodology I go through, put it in an index fund, put it in a low cost listed investment company which doesn't charge much in fees, which grinds out year in year out the market average. And uh, over a long enough period of time, you're going to do really, really well. Yeah, that's, uh, as you know, uh, one of my other mates down in Melbourne, Steve Samatino. Uh, I did some podcasts with him about his investment strategy, which is basically that, which he started doing when he was in his early 20s. Um, and that's pretty much all he did. We called it the Samatino method. And uh, yeah, he's done very well out of that, was able to retire from his corporate job in his 30s, I think, as a result of doing yeah. that from his early 20s onwards. Well, maybe we could catch up with him at some stage as an interview on this podcast and just find out where he's at with that. Yeah, absolutely intend to have Steve on as a guest, along with other guests. In fact, uh, Torsten Hoffman, the producer of our film, uh, as you may know, has just done his second documentary on cryptocurrency. He said he wants to be our first guest to talk about cryptocurrency as an investment strategy. <laughs> which right, I, well, it's not much. I don't know much about that at all, but I haven't um, looked into it very far. And when I have, I haven't been excited by it. So that'll be yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it's something we should at least uh, talk about because people will be wondering, right. should I invest in cryptocurrency? So Yeah, um, it's interesting. You know, it's funny. Like When I have discussions with with younger people about this kind of stuff, that's oftentimes the very first question that comes up. Should I be buying Bitcoin? Yeah. Yeah. And Well, uh, I'll be interested to get your thoughts on that in a future episode. Yeah. Well, I always say no, but... <laughs> Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when you were around here with dinner with the boys and it came up and you just kind of laughed. <laughs> Bitcoin. So anyway. Yeah, it's a pump and dump. In all fairness, you had a couple of bottles of wine and half a bottle of scotch in you at that point. So <laughs> I think we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get your views on it in slightly more sober state. Um, Buffett's letter. Let's uh, talk about that. Yeah, so... I'm always very excited every year around this time. It's Christmas in March for me when Buffett writes his annual letter to shareholders. So uh, he's required by law to put out an annual report, which is very, very dry. It's a, such a big company now. There's like 100 pages of numbers in it. Um, 
but he writes a letter and it's, it's only fairly short it's probably a dozen pages but it goes through his feelings on the market his feelings on accounting standards his feelings on the economy and what's happening in Berkshire Hathaway and it's just always such a refreshing read it's it's very very shareholder friendly um, and full of full of sort of you know home homespun charm which is just delightful um, I know I get excited by it and when you were talking before about people listening to this podcast uh, doing their exercise or going for walks or whatever who may not be getting excited I'm hoping there's a couple of people out there who are just doing cartwheels to get access to this information because I find it exciting and I'm sure you know people like your boys who are serious about their financial future um, are finding it exciting too but anyway Buffett's letter um on the first page of the of this shareholders letter every year, and you can get it on the Berkshire Hathaway Hathaway website for free. It's a very is this simple the website. Twenty eighteen letter you're looking it at. It is, yeah, yeah. I've got that in front of me. Yeah, just Google uh, Buffett annual letter. You'll find it right. very easily. And so the very first page has the annual re- returns for Berkshire Hathaway over its life, which is I don't know how many years. A long time, um, forty years maybe. Uh, and it can, gets compared to the uh, the index in the US, S&P 500, I think they use. And the most recent uh, compounding growth of, of Berkshire Hathaway runs at 20.5%. So maybe I should have saved myself all this time and trouble and bought a Berkshire Hathaway share when I retired <laughs> and would have compounded it uh, 20.5%, not the 19.5% i have been getting. Wow. But you do have to deal with... Um, currency fluctuations being an Australian investor and uh, US reporting which is a pain in the butt too right uh, yeah so just quickly on that in there's a couple of columns in that column uh, in the past Buffett has called out the fact that he would like shareholders to focus on the change in book value rather than the change in, in um, share price he's changed that in this newsletter because he's worried that the accounting standards in the US don't uh, provide an accurate reflection of book value. And without boring listeners, it's it goes to marking to market uh, the value of shares. So if they've had, he has a very large uh, portfolio of share investments in companies like Coca-Cola, American Express, Wells Fargo Bank, etc., etc. If if they go up or down quarter by quarter, he has to take that through the P&L now, and that can change um the, the valuation of, of the book value for Berkshire Hathaway. Um, that wasn't always the case, so he's calling it out as being um, something he doesn't like, and he's going back to just looking at the, the change in the share price. Getting that out the way, though, uh, the probably the biggest thing to hit Berkshire Hathaway recently was to do with uh, a write-down by one of their biggest uh, shareholdings, a company called Kraft Heinz, um, which we all know and I'm sure we use the products of, so Heinz tomato sauces or um, mayonnaise or or craft mayonnaise Um, very very big consumer goods company and the interesting thing about this is that Warren Buffett has always talked about um, looking for companies that have a moat around them and what he means by that is that they have such goodwill that they've built up or they spend so much on marketing or they have some kind of natural or historic advantage that it's very hard for someone to start up and to take on that company um, and beat them. What what I think's happened 
and has been interesting in the last sort of five to ten years is that's been happening in the market. There's been plenty of, you know, craft brewers, for example, taking market share off the big players. Um, and now it's starting to happen in the, the supermarket space with companies like Whole Foods. Um, so smaller uh, niche players, they might be catering to organic uh, segments of the market or they might, they might be catering to, you know, local tastes or vegans or whatever. They are now starting to assail these moats around big companies like uh, Procter & Gamble and Kraft Heinz. Coupled with that, Buffett also helped a company called 3G, which is a Brazilian uh, private equity company, buy into uh, Kraft Heinz. And they've done the, the classic PE price equity uh, type strategy of trying to rip as much cost out of the company as they can. And potentially, I guess, in the future with the view to, to selling it um, at a higher price uh, because the cost reductions have, have um, increased the profit. The only problem with that strategy with this company is that to, to maintain that moat, uh, Kraft Heinz spends a heck of a lot on marketing and some of the, the cost cutting has affected that marketing and uh, it's made it easier for the, the startups to take some market share off it. So it's. I thought this was just a very interesting update on, on Buffett's thinking on, on the moats. He's still saying he's a big believer in them, but a lot of analysts in the last week have challenged that view and said, um, look, may have been the case in the 50s and the 60s in America, but are any of the moats safe now with disruptors going on? Having said that, you know, it's a 25% write down on one share in the Buffett portfolio, so it's not going to break the back of Berkshire Hathaway. But uh, yeah, just an interesting and timely um debate on whether the moats still hold. Mm. Um, he commented on the market in saying that yeah, that he he has so much cash, I think he's sitting on something like $130 billion worth of cash or cash equivalents, like bonds, for example, um, that he can't deploy. He's, he's struggling to find big companies that he wants to buy outright that meet his, his value criteria. So he, what he's saying is that he'll probably have to keep putting money into the share market and instead of buying one big elephant and owning it 100%, which is his preference, he'll, he'll continue to buy stakes of, say, 10% in Apple and um, Amex, Coca-Cola, etc. So I guess, a, you know, um, I guess a bit of a, a, a forecast for the economy and that he's saying it's, things are fairly fairly fully valued. He's struggling to find deals. Um, interesting interesting quote. He often criticizes uh, Wall Street for using metrics like adjusted EBITDA, so that's earnings before income tax and depreciation. And this is often a common metric used by a company that's not making much money. So they'll say, don't look at our profit and loss line because we're growing in the future. Look at our EBITDA line. Look at our earnings before we have to pay interest or tax or depreciation. And uh, he's always been a, a big critic of that. And the example he uses in the annual letter it deals with stock-based compensation. So this is where CEOs or, or boards grant CEOs part of their salary um, in shares, and then they hide that the cost of that share issue as a, an abnormal below the line. And they say, well, our normal profit or our normalized profit is this, and they don't call out what it costs them to issue shares to themselves. And he's calling that as a problem. And he, he, he quotes Abraham Lincoln, who said, if you call a dog's tail a leg, how many legs does it have? 
And the answer is four, because calling a tail a leg doesn't make it so. And <laughs> basically what he's saying is the same thing applies to the CEOs who are who are playing funny buggers with the with the accounting standards. So always a good quote from Buffett on on the malfeasance of, of Wall Street in there. Um, one of the points I wanted to raise, and he raises it, one of the secret sources, and perhaps the secret source to Berkshire Hathaway is what's called the insurance float. So Berkshire Hathaway over the years has become a large insurance company, and, and I think it's probably now the largest in what they call property and casualty, so like general insurance. Uh, but anyway, it basically Berkshire Hathaway has funded its acquisitions out of what's called the insurance float. So what that is, is if I, if I, if I own an insurance company and we charge premiums, we get to keep that, that money that's raised by the premiums until we have to pay it out on a claim. And of course, not all the claims get paid out. Um, and a lot of those insurance uh, insurances that are taken out don't get paid out until well into the future, like life insurance um, or uh, workers' compensation type insurances. So he can he can get use of those premiums for you know a lifetime basically or a generation before he has to worry about paying them out. And that's called the insurance float. So it's a, it's the use of the premiums over time, and it's also often called the underwriting profit. So if if the premiums exceed the, the claims, that's called the underwriting profit. And those two things have enabled Berkshire Hathaway to always remain relatively debt-free. Sometimes they borrow, but, but they've got so much cash coming in from those insurance businesses uh, that they're struggling to deploy it these days. And that's been the secret source for, for Buffett. I call it the money flywheel. So it's, it's throwing off so much cash um, it's you know it's not available to you and I to do, um, but it it also I think has to be taken into account when people just point to Buffett's investing ability. He also set up a really good business which which throws off so much cash. Hmm. Uh, I said before, yeah. So just the point I said before about he's finding it, he's struggling to find large acquisitions and will keep buying shares while he's searching. Uh, but he, he says this is not a market call. And the, the quote in the newsletter is, Charlie and I have no idea how stocks will behave next week or next year. Uh, that sort of prediction has never been part of our activity. And, you know, that's I think that's a really good thing to, to say and call out. And it's also, I think, pertinent to our stock market investing in that, you know, I do pay a large... Um, attention to the figures and the facts of what's in front of us and I pay less attention to where I think the market will be currently or in the future because you just no one can predict the future and you're always constantly surprised by it so it's just it's really a hopeless thing to try and do and an even more hopeless thing to try and base your investment decisions on so I I love the annual letter from Berkshire Hathaway because it just keeps reinforcing all these ideas in your mind as an investor Let's let's pause for a second and, and talk about what you just said there. So we did talk, uh, I think, in last week's episode about uh, buy, or maybe the first episode about the you know the old wisdom of buying low and selling high. And I, I think the way most people, when they're starting out and investing in the share market, translate that is buying when the market is low and selling when the market is high and. There's obviously uh, usually a lot of talk about where the market's at and whether or not there's going to be a correction in the market and when should you buy, when should you sell. 
But you're saying you you don't pay a great deal of attention to where the market's at in terms of its natural cycles of ups and downs? No, I, I find it comes through in the numbers that I'm seeing. So when the market's high, I find less stocks that meet my value criteria. Uh, so kind of naturally you don't invest in a, in a, a peakish market. And when the market's low, you know, you find lots of stocks to invest in. So if I take some examples, coming up into the dot-com bust around the, around the year 2000, value investors really struggled to, to find stocks to buy. Um, and if you found one or two, again, they were your cigar butts that, that you know, were, were cheap for a reason rather than, um, they were, rather than being a quality company at good value. Conversely, um, coming out of the GFC in about 2009, I literally was just awash with companies that I could invest in. And I, it was actually it was actually almost hard to invest because I kept, you know, the, the behavioral part of your brain's going, do you really want to buy in this market that's still going down? And the, and the, the more analytical side of the brain's going, this is fantastic. Back the car up and load up. Let's go. Um, and luckily I did the second one. And I think almost everything I bought in 2009 tripled in value very quickly. So you've got to have that discipline of not paying attention to what the noise is about the market or trying to form a view of is the market high or low or is it going to go higher or lower, but to look at the numbers of the stock shit that are in front of you and are they good buys. And so the other thing too, the other thing too is that um, if you're doing, it, as I am, as you're all, if you're always taking the six monthly reports and going through the numbers and making your decisions to buy or sell, um, you, you're actually doing what's called dollar cost averaging. So you're, you're buying at every stage in the market. And over time, um, you're not going to have all your money in the high or the low, but you're going to get the average, uh, which is not too bad. I wanted to ask you about um, something that I read over the week uh, in Market Watch, an opinion piece written by some guy called Harold Howard Gold, it's entitled "Investors Should No Longer Bet on Warren Buffett," and he was talking about his uh, Buffett's shareholder newsletter that went out and says one thing jumped out at me in his annual letter: his acknowledgement that his best stock pickers hadn't beaten the market, and his tacit admission that investors couldn't expect Berkshire Hathaway to do so in the future either. Uh, blah, 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 investment managers from Berkshire said, overall, they are a tiny bit behind the S&P, each by just almost the same margin over the same time, Buffett said. They have done better than I have. Humility aside, that's quite an admission. Warren Buffett, the greatest investor in history, is saying that neither he nor his best hand-picked stock-picking talent has achieved the essential goal of active money management, beating a boring old index fund any schlemiel can buy in his or her 401k. What would be your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's a valid criticism, but I don't think it's a valid criticism of the future of Berkshire Hathaway. Um, there will always be periods from time to time when active managers will underperform the market. Um, that That in itself might be a bit of a, hint that the market's getting a bit peakish um, because what's probably happening is that Berkshire Hathaway, well, first of all, I should explain that, Ber that Warren Buffett doesn't do all the investing in Berkshire Hathaway anymore. As part of mm. the succession plan, which basically sees Buffett going, you know, shuffling off his mortal coil, he's, he's hired <laughs> a couple of uh, people that he trusts 
to uh, implement his style of investing for the future so that when when Munger and Buffett aren't around anymore, um, basically four people run Berkshire Hathaway. There's two guys doing the investing and there's mm-hmm. two guys, one one looking after the insurance businesses and one looking after the, the rest, the operating businesses. And so he's started to give the the fund managers more and more funds to invest. If they're using the Buffett style, which I think they probably are, um, and they're underperforming the market, it's probably a sign that uh, that the internet-type stocks that have high PEs um, have had a good run, which is often a sign that um, the market's getting a bit peaky. If they've underperformed by only a small amount, I wouldn't be too worried about the market getting peaky, but that's probably one of the reasons for it. If you look at that front page of the newsletter for the last 40-odd years or whatever it's been, they've basically doubled the market. Uh, they do call out every year that as they get bigger and bigger, that's harder to do because they're, as I said before in, in this podcast, you have to focus on larger market cap stocks and they're not going to perform as well as the small stocks, which um, have you know smaller opportunities to buy. And when you start to have people buying them, that forces the, the share price up just through the sheer small volume that's on offer. Um, so there's that. But also, too, the last point I make is that I think in almost every newsletter I've read, Buffett always comes out and says, I'm not predicting I'm going to do as well in the future as I did in the past. It's his way of um, of setting lower expectations, which he then beats in the future. <laughs> I just wanted to point out when he said he's implementing a succession plan that Buffett is currently 88 and Charlie Munger, his partner, is 95. That's right. And as he points out in the newsletter, I'm the young one. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're old guys, they've been doing it a long time. But so, if I understand your point, is look, you know, one year's performance is really uh, meaningless. It's it's their performance over time that really counts exactly. by sticking to yeah. their strategy. Yes, yes. And uh, they've got a big, long track record of doing well. And I think also too these days with Berkshire Hathaway, as, as Warren Buffett says, he's looking for the big elephant investments now. So if he does happen to find a company he can buy for $100 billion, that's much more likely to have an impact on Berkshire Hathaway's share price than these fund managers going out and buying another 10% of Apple. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, I can't remember the exact metrics, but if you look at the the, the share, the the newsletter the, to shareholders, he points out that his two biggest companies, I think were up like 25% in, in um, earnings year on year. So, wow. you know, he, he still knows how to invest. Trust me. All right, Tony. Well, listen, I think that's probably all we've got time for this week. I think maybe next week we'll actually start to drill down on a particular company and, and a lot of these uh, checklist things might start to make more sense as we actually apply it to a real company. Uh, and we do that over and over and over until we do our 10,000 hours and we, we get good at it. By we, I mean the rest of us that aren't you. You've already done your 10,000 hours and then some. One of the thoughts I had prepping for this show is that uh, I'm guessing that people who are going to be interested in this show are probably starting out in their, along their own investment path, much like your boys, or maybe even like you might if, if um, you have a bit of spare cash. And it might be worthwhile trying to put together a small, a small cap portfolio for them. Uh, so... Mm-hmm. Pick the shares that I might not necessarily buy because they're too small, 
but someone with five thousand dollars to invest might, or one thousand dollars to invest might, um, might have no problems with the liquidity of that share. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. we'll get some good returns from that portfolio. Okay, great. I mean, so we can build that and keep track of it each week and see how it's tracking and give people something they can follow along with. That's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mind you, like even at I talked about the kids, but even at my age, like I'm I'm not quite fifty. But even if I uh, was able to start a fund now at my age, by the time I'm 70, I'm, I'm still going to be working the way I'm going. So it'd be nice to build something that could uh, ease my retirement from 70 onwards. Absolutely. I mean, the, yeah. the old saying in, uh, of the ecological activists was the best time to plant a tree was 40 years ago. The second best time to plant a tree is today. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 All right. Same well, let's, let's, uh, let's do it next week. We'll start planting some trees. Yeah, good. Thanks, buddy. All right. Thanks, Cam. Well, I hope you survived episode two. It was a long one, an hour and ten. Listen, uh, just as a reminder, this uh, you should not make any investment decisions based on this podcast alone. Go out and get some professional investment advice uh, before you spend your money. And, uh, of course, you can subscribe to our newsletter, Go up to our website, uh, qavpodcast.com.au. We've got a weekly newsletter that will be coming out soon, just with some thoughts from Tony about the market. And uh, you can subscribe. If you're listening to this on the website, uh, you can go up to iTunes or Spotify or any podcast app where you get your podcasts and to subscribe to our weekly updates, weekly episodes. My name's Cameron Riley. Uh, You can find me on Facebook. You can probably find Tony on Facebook. If you want to join uh, and chat to us uh, offline about stuff and uh, we'll be back next time. Thanks for listening.